We live in a very, very complex time. I know, Cal, that sounds cliche, but we do. We're leading in complex times. I, I think the genesis of this book really was a green room meeting that I had before an event. And I was sitting down with 16 other CEOs. We were all getting ready to speak at some breakout or some plenary session. And so I just asked them all, do you think leading today is harder than it was than when you first learned to lead? And I was stunned when every single person that responded said, absolutely, yes, it's harder today. And the reason that stunned me is because I thought most of us would say, oh, it's harder back when I didn't know anything, you know, back yeah. when I started leading at 28 years old. <laughs> but nope, every single one of them said harder to lead today. So that kind of set me on a research hunt, you know, and I started digging and, and researching. And I discovered that the average team member entering a workforce, entering the workforce today, brings higher levels of education than they did years ago, higher levels of entitlement, pardon me, we all feel entitled to perks and benefits mm -hmm. today more than we did 15 years ago. Higher levels of exposure because we have a smartphone in our hand. We are exposed to everything and we think we know everything because we've been on Twitter, you yes. know. Higher levels of emotion. Uh, think of, well, here's how I would put it. I began my career four decades ago and the typical leader would say to a worker, leave your problems at the door you come here to work you know that was the way a boss talked well today the typical mantra is bring your whole selves to work your emotions your personal life your problems and i've talked to ceos that say i feel like i need to be a therapist and a cheerleader and a motivational speaker you know that's yes. true we're both laughing right now yeah. but it's true 100%. so all of that boiled together um, just makes a, a leader go, my gosh, I don't know whether you need me to be this or that. What do you need from me today? And the, the fact is they need a leader today. But what I really think is they need a very highly emotionally intelligent leader who knows when to practice the paradoxes. And that's what this book is about. Eight huge paradoxes. And we need to read them before we lead them and practice them at the right time. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 85 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm Cal, and I'm so thankful to have you joining us here today. We are on a mission to learn, to grow, and we're on this journey together. So I'm excited that you can join me today as we learn from our guest, Dr. Tim Elmore. Tim is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. Since founding Growing Leaders, Tim has served over 500,000 leaders in businesses, universities, athletic teams, and nonprofit organizations, including Delta, The Home Depot, Coca-Cola, American Eagle, Chick-fil-A, and many others. In fact, his work grew out of working with Dr. John Maxwell, which we talk about. We have some great stories about John Maxwell on this show. He worked for him for 20 years. Tim has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, USA Today, Psychology Today, and many others. He is listed in the top 100 leadership speakers in America by Inc. Magazine, and he's written over 35 books. I learned a ton from this conversation. We talk about generational diversity and what each generation brings to the table and how us as leaders can lead well by harnessing these differences. So whether you're a baby boomer, a baby buster, a millennial like me, Gen Z, or don't even know what generation you fit into, I didn't know that for a little while. I didn't know that I was a millennial. This episode has something for you. We also dive into mentoring. He shares some wonderful stories about John Maxwell. We talk about his new book, The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership. So, so much packed into this. And before we jump in, I want to let you know 
that we've been combing through some of our best interviews over the past few years. We do hour plus interviews on here and we try to distill some of the best takeaways from some of the most effective and practical interviews into a 12 page PDF that outlines 12 key ideas that we think will make you a better leader. It's a free guide and it's something that you could take literally 12 days or, or even 12 weeks and just take one section of this and try to think about it implement it into your life. We want to give you this. Just go to intentionalleader.org and get these 12 ideas that will make you a better leader today. This episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to help you optimize your team's performance. They can help repair your organization to meet the rapidly changing, complex, and often ambiguous requirements of today's world. We talk about that today with Dr. Elmore, just how difficult it is right now to be a leader. And what they'll do is they'll help you develop resilient and adaptive leaders. They'll help you modernize and enhance your systems, and they'll help you with your technology and make sure that's integrated into your whole organization. Go visit higherechelon.com to connect with Dr. Joe Ross and his amazing team over at Higher Echelon. Hey, if you enjoy this episode, I just want to ask you to share it with someone in your network. Help spread the word about Dr. Elmore's work. Help spread the word about what we're trying to learn here on Intentional Leader, where we study self-leadership, we study organizational leadership, we study personal growth. We're all about helping leaders get to the next level because we know that when you get better, everything you touch gets better. Your family, your community, your team, your organization, and that And we just get excited about that because we know that ultimately helps make our world a better place. When you and I grow as leaders, it's better to be on your team. And that means when people are on your team, they're happier people. They're more fulfilled people. They go home to their families more happy and more fulfilled. So we get so pumped about the power of growth and leadership. So without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Tim Elmore. All right, Dr. Tim Elmore, thank you so much for coming on today. It's a pleasure to have you on. My pleasure, Cal. Great to be with you. I first, as I was telling you off camera, I first learned about you when you were on the Andy Stanley podcast back in April of 2019, talking about a topic that, and first time I'd ever even thought about the topic of generational diversity. And we talk a lot about diversity in other areas, but I had never thought about how challenging that can be for leaders to navigate all the different generations they might have working in one workplace. Um, so tell me, how did that become? Yeah, yeah, I think it's... No, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it became a thing because I was noticing. We have four generations working at Growing Leaders, and um, you just don't approach a 23-year-old the way you do a 58-year-old. Um, you know, and you, you kind of intuitively know that, but I think just as real as ethnic diversity, gender diversity, income diversity is this fact that if we got four generations to work together, it's like foreigners. We're foreigners in a little way, you know, and we might as well just call out the elephant in the room and say, well, how do I approach this? And your motivation might be different. Your communication style and preferences might be different. What you value might be different. So that's really what that was all about. And I, I, I don't mean to overspeak. It's not a science, but it's a social science that I think leaders just need to be aware of. And we're just better for it if we let Gen Zers and millennials and Xers and boomers be who they are so we can add value and become the very best team we can be. Let's go into some of these these generations uh, because I think a lot of people maybe are familiar with some of the big names, but maybe don't appreciate the, the full breakdown can you kind of give us an overview of, of the different generations? And then we'll get into, uh, we're not going to spend too much time on this because I want to get into yeah. the, the eight paradoxes, but I'd love for people to get a sense of some of the, you know, the minor ways in which these generations might be different. Yeah, sure. So I would be a baby boomer. <clears throat> so I'm a veteran. Um, I, uh, the baby boomers are called baby boomers because the, the generation started in 1946, right on the heels of World War II, and there was a boom of babies. As the soldiers came back from the war, there were 76.5 million babies born in 18 years. That had never happened before. And because it was a boom of babies, everybody paid attention to the baby boomers, the marketers, that is. They wanted their eventual dollar. So books and television programs and broadcast and, and, you know, and, and advertising, everybody paid attention to the boomers. 
Following the baby boomers came the next generation called the baby busters or Generation X, 1965 to 1982. This was a different generation. This generation was called baby buster because the first year of their generation's existence was the public introduction of the birth control pill. Mm. So instead of a boom, it was a bust. Interesting. Uh, in fact, if you add on top of that, Roe v. Wade in 1973, you have a shrinking population, not a booming population. So it was smaller and the years were harder from 65 to 82. You had the Vietnam War that kind of went sour in the minds of many Americans. Were we winning? Were we losing? What actually happened there? Then you had the Watergate scandal. Then you had the OPEC gas crisis and the failed Iran hostage rescue. Just several things happened that just were kind of a black eye. And so the Xers grew up a little bit more cynical and jaded than the boomers were. You can imagine. It was like, well, what's going on here? Okay. Then the millennials came along, the kids born in the 80s and 90s. And that was a whole nother different time. And so the millennials were a generation that was much more optimistic on the heels of the Xers, the 80s and 90s, where the, the economy boomed again. And um, in fact, you do see a definite trajectory of up and down, up and down, bull market, bear market, bull market, bear market mm -hmm. with each of these generations. So the millennials were much more confident, much more optimistic. Uh, and then Gen Z is now entering the workforce. Uh, they would be the kids that have pretty much grown up in the 21st century. So Cal, the millennials grew up with a cell phone. Gen Z grew up with a smartphone. And that was a game changer. You know, social media has just been, you know, around all the mm -hmm. time in their minds. Yeah. So I'll stop there. But um, those four generations, because of the different experience they had growing up, the different technology introductions that happened when they were growing up, the different economies uh, gave them a different mindset. And I actually believe all four in the workplace add a unique value if we'll let them be who they are. And that's that's my goal as we work with organizations and schools and so forth. Let's let's allow each generation to be the best version of themselves and be different. So when you're working with leaders and, and you kind of start with the framework of helping getting everybody on the same page of the different generations, where do you start with leaders? Like how, sh how should we... How yeah. should we use that knowledge as we're interacting? Because, because say my boss is probably <clears throat> probably a baby buster. The people on my team now, yeah. I'm, I'm a millennial. The people on my team are now Gen Z and maybe even whatever the next generation is. Probably not quite yet. Yeah. But I, you know, so yeah. I, I, what would you? What do you typically tell leaders in terms of how they should begin to think about incorporating these these diverse groups on their team? Yeah, I usually say two things. One, I say leaders need to always remember that context explains conduct. Context, conduct. What I mean by that is, have you ever looked at a person maybe from another generation? You go, oh my gosh, why would you do that? Why would you listen to that? Why would you say that? Yeah. But then you understand a little context. You go, oh, of yeah. course, mm -hmm. that's why you would do that. So that's, that's one. Leaders need to remember. It's a, it's a behavioral science principle, but yeah. context explains conduct. The other thing I, I always say, it's a little bit cliche, pardon me, but you got to read them before you lead them. Mm. So if I read my people before I lead my people, I'm going to get so much more out of them. Um, and so um, you probably know this about me, Cal, but I, we, I teach leadership with images and we call them habitudes. Habitudes are images that form leadership habits and attitudes. Mm. So the one I love most in this topic is chess. And checkers. So everybody listening probably knows in a game chess and checkers. They're played on the very same game board, but the difference is the pieces. When I play the game of checkers, all my pieces look alike. Yeah. Same shape, same size, they all move alike. So I treat them all alike. In chess, if I have any hope of winning the game, I have to know what each piece can do, right? Absolutely. That a bishop goes up two and over one and a you know a, a, a a rook does this and a knight does this and you know whatever so all i'm saying is i think i great leaders well let me let me back up and say it this way mediocre leaders play checkers with their people they treat them all alike and they get average performance great leaders have learned to play chess in the relationships of their life and they connect with others at the uniqueness of their strength and their personality and so i know you are very familiar with the military you're in the military you know, it's very easy to play checkers there. Just bark out the order, 
And those guys and gals are supposed to do what you say. I actually think tomorrow in the land of tomorrow, we need to play chess and find out who those men and women are. And the best leaders, even if you got a stripe that's more, more stripes than them or, or higher rank than them, if we're playing chess, we're just going to do better as leaders. Yeah. What should we keep in mind when we're dealing with, say, a, a baby boomer? Like if, if I'm a, if I'm in an organization, what, what are some things as I'm working, what, what contacts yeah. maybe are they thinking about specifically? Yeah. Baby, bo- since I am a baby boomer, I could give you some, <laughs> some uh, you know, uh, um, wisdom here, I guess, maybe, or at least experience. I would say boomers want to be heard for their stories and their experience. And so even if you go, oh my gosh, you just have a bunch of history lessons for me, boomer, you know, that sort of thing. I think it just is is wonderful to pay them respect and say, when did you go through this in the past? What did you learn? And allow them to be coaches and mentors, um, or at least allow them to feel like they're coaching and mentoring. We we just love to have that that respect, you know, that that sort of thing. Uh, so I I really believe that if you're 27, not 67, and you're going, I do not need what you have to say. Just the the respect and the honor. I think honor is the best word there. Allow them to feel honored that you want to listen and hear their stories just goes a long way to winning them over and then allowing them to be the, the coaches on the team. I think that would be what I would say there. Yeah. What do you what do you think they most bring to the table? Well, I do think it's similar stories from from similar times in the past. So boomers, I, I'm a baby boomer. This is the 42nd year of my career. So I do need to remember things are changing. Don't always repeat what you've done in the past, but we have learned lessons from the past. We went through some economic recessions in the past. So maybe we might have some wisdom on the current, you know, difficult marketplace right now. That that would be what I would say. Um, yeah. yeah, there's probably a story in there that we can learn from from the past. Well, here's a good, here's a good example. Um, this is the, uh, this pandemic we're going through. I went through a pandemic when I was in the third and fourth grade. Oh, really? um, I remember they told us to wash our hands and, you know, all the stuff were not mm-hmm. all the stuff, but some of the stuff we're here, but I remember, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I remember going through this in 1968, yeah. 69, 70 with the Hong Kong flu. Uh, and, and some of the Vietnam vets brought it back with them as they returned from the war. So that's just one picture, but. I think we need to sometimes, here's what I recommend, two things. Let's have a panel of different generations where we have team time and we let a boomer, an Xer, and a millennial all talk about what they bring to the table and what, what did you learn from the past? And then here's another one that I did. Uh, I think I brought this up on the Andy Stanley podcast. Practice reverse mentoring. Reverse mentoring is genius. Um, I uh, Reverse mentoring happens when an older senior member on the team meets with a younger, perhaps rookie on the team. They get together and they swap stories. Mm. You can almost always find common ground when you swap stories. Where'd you grow up? What'd you learn? What, you know, where'd you go to school? And then allow the older veteran team member to say, here's how this company works. You know, let me, let me just share with you how to succeed here. But then they might be asking the 20 something, what's the, what's the best way to leverage the latest TikTok, you know, platform to market our company, you know, or whatever. There's always something both parties can learn. And I think it adds dignity to both parties. I love that. Yeah. It it seems like for me, the more I, as I get older, the more and more I appreciate the wisdom that comes from just being, just experience. Growing up or as I was younger, I just don't, of course I I didn't fully appreciate that. I was actually listening to a sermon by Tim Keller the other day. He was preaching yeah. on Proverbs and he was just talking about how life is a path and yeah. it, it's one step at a time. And over time through experience, you just develop a level of wisdom that you just can't cheat. You just get yeah. with with time and experience. So I can see how uh, baby boomers, baby busters, they bring those stories and that experience that that you just don't have if you haven't had this, that time on earth to experience it. Yeah, and, it's true. Uh, so tell us a little bit real quick about millennials and Gen Z. Uh, I mean, it might be, I, I can imagine a lot of folks immediately think, okay, technology is something they bring to the table, but what, what are we, how should we deal with these uh, younger generations and what specifically do they bring to the table that's unique? 
Yeah. So millennials um, often enter the workforce with some confidence. I know the uh, marketplace right now, the economy right now is not a confident marketplace, but they tend to come in as a younger professional with a bit more confidence. I think it's important to remember that the best phrase to keep in mind with when you're leading a millennial is life is a cafeteria. So think with me for a minute, just like you go to a cafeteria and you grab a plate and a tray and a, a, play and a, a plate and a tray and you, you know, grab your mashed potatoes, your roast beef, your jello, whatever you want for your taste buds. <laughs> They're approaching almost every major decision of their life as if it were a buffet. So my two kids are both millennials. My daughter, Bethany is 33. My son, Jonathan is 29. They stopped buying CDs to get their music years ago. Mm-hmm. Why would they buy a CD? There might be six songs they don't even like on that CD. <laughs> they get one song at a time from their own playlist mm-hmm. on Spotify or iTunes. You know, that's, yeah. I mean, you understand I'm a, I'm a millennial. Yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> there you yeah, go. 100%. Yeah. So they, they made college decisions like this. They didn't go to one college, maybe for four years. They went to two or three different colleges. It's a, it's a buffet. It's a cafeteria. Um, spiritually speaking, you know, very often you see a millennial a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Oprah Winfrey, you know, shake it together. I've got my own <laughs> theology now, you know, what, what, you know, what's up with that? But it's just the way of our culture. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying it's real. Why is so that? Leaders- why, why are, just real quick, why are, why are we, why am I like that? Why are millennials that way in, in terms of the way we were raised, I guess? I think it's a free agent mindset. Okay. You know, in sports, there's free agency, you know, when you, you, you're done with the contract and now shop around, I'm selling myself to the highest bidder. I think that's just a mindset and it's not just the workplace, it's everywhere. So because millennials grew up in a time of digital customization, where you do customize things, that's what, that's what free agency is. It's customizing my career path. So uh, again, I, I'm, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, I think an employer or a leader, if they're just wanting the good old days back in 1965, you know, where it was like this, you know, you stayed one place and got your gold watch after you served for 50 years or 45 years. That's just, um, that's just not the way it is. Loyalty is something that's earned, not expected. Yeah. So how, how should we approach millennials based on that? Well, I think one, I've already said it, play chess, not checkers. So let them be who they are and play the card that's in their hand. But secondly, I believe every time I get together with my own kids, they're young professionals. And by the way, they both were interns with me way back in the day. So they did work for dad for a little while. (laughs) I still learn from them every single time I'm with them. So if I'm willing to practice reverse mentoring, they're much more open to learning from the old guy if I'm willing to learn from the young girl or young guy, you know, my son and daughter. And I tell them that. I say, oh, my gosh, I learned something every time I'm with them. We were just together at Christmas not long ago. Oh, my gosh, I learned from that. You know what? That makes the medicine I want to give to them go down a little easier um, because I've, I've been willing to be teachable and hungry to learn. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but I think that's what I need to do as an older, an older seasoned veteran in my career. I, I've always been, I've always heard that millennials are the ones who were, were kind of told that they could be anything and do yeah. anything, uh, yeah. which to me sounds like it might be hard to create loyalty in a millennial or to get loyalty because yeah. they're constantly thinking about the next big thing or they can do anything. So let me hop to this job. Let me try this path. Uh, yeah. it, how, how do you get loyalty from a millennial? And here's a scenario where, you know, I can give examples of my wife and myself where, you know, you, you're trying to mentor someone and, and get them to buy into the team. But then at the same time, you're having those conversations with them about their goals and their future Yeah, and their goals may not align with the organization. They, they're, they're thinking, Hey, I'm here for yeah. a year or two. And then I want to yeah. go try this. So it can be challenging for leaders. It can. So I think a leader needs to say, let's make an exchange. Um, I'm not going to, well, you may not say this to their face, but you might just, you know, they may only be here two or three years. Let me add value to them. Let me not just give them professional development, which helps them do their job better, but personal development to, to help them as a person. 
I love it if a young millennial uh, leaves this place to move to wherever they're moving to, for them to write a note and say, I'm a better husband because I worked here. I'm a better father because I worked here. I'm a better worker because I worked here. So I added value to them. And so I, I think in many ways, meaning is the new money. Uh, certainly they love money. Nobody yeah. doesn't like money, right. but to add meaning to their life. So we try to uh, provide personal coaching and personal development while they're working here. That would be one, I would yeah. say, uh, to find out what their career path, what they want from their career path, and then say, let me play a part in that. Um, mm-hmm. That really speaks volumes to them. And I think that makes them want to lean in in return and say, I want to be the best team member I can be. Hearing you talk through that, I, I as a millennial can definitely, uh, that resonates with me, the idea of meaning. Yeah. I, that's really important to me is that I find meaning in my job. Yeah. Uh, and I guess that's just a part of a um, product of my of my generation and how, how I yeah. grew up. Yeah. I'm really curious about Gen Z because I have a lot of Gen Z people on my team. Yeah. How should we yeah. think about them? Well, Generation Z uh, has been, it's been a much more difficult time. Think about life the last 20 years and you've got Gen Z really. I mean, at least they're cognizant the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. So um, the millennials grew up in a time where mostly as they were growing up as children, it was uh, an up economy. Um, Gen Z has seen three economic downturns since they were born. Mm. You know, there was a dot-com era bubble bursting at the turn of the century. And then the 2008-2009 economic recession, yeah. the Great Recession. And then there's now. You know, yeah. we're still trying to climb out of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the Great Resignation has happened over the last couple of years where they just quit their jobs. And I think they were in pursuit of pandemic-proof jobs. So maybe it's not as good, but I'm driving for Uber Eats and I'm in control of my income and my you know, time and so forth. So I think we need to understand they're wanting control uh, more so than they you know, might have five, six, seven, eight years ago, because it seems so out of control. Hmm. Um, Gen Z struggles with mental health issues far more than past generations, anxiety, depression, panic attacks, not all of them, but a large percentage. So workplaces that say, I want to help you deal with that. Oh my gosh, that's so attractive. Um, I just was in a meeting with Chick-fil-A yesterday. And of course, they employ a bunch of Gen Z members. (laughs) Their team members at restaurants are often 16, 17, 18, 20 years old. For a workplace like that to say, we care about your mental health and we want to really help you get ready for whatever that career is going to be. Major wins for an operator or a general manager. Uh, at a at a restaurant, who's who's because is able to communicate that. So I'll stop there. Um, that's what I think is is the uh, is the life of the Gen Zer right now. And what do they bring to the table that might be unique to their generation? Yeah, well, they bring a hacker mindset, and I don't just mean in the area of technology. They are getting behind and figuring out how systems work everywhere they go. So a hacker mindset, um, an entrepreneur mindset. of American public high school students, 72% plan to be an entrepreneur or want to be an entrepreneur. Now, they're not all going to be successful at that, (laughs) but they see themselves, you know, doing that. So they've got this mindset of let's invent, let's create, let's innovate. We need to tap into that. Um, And that mindset, instead of just saying, hey, shut up and just do your work until you're 30, Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we let them join a, 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 a agile team or a committee or a, or a team and say, what, what do you think about this? What if we let a Gen Z team member sit in on the leadership team meeting and listen in for sure, but maybe they add a comment or two from, from how they're thinking. I think very often a young team member represents the future. You know, this is how we're all going to think in 15 years. Right. We're going to get a, a front load of that with that 27-year-old or 22-year-old right now. So yeah, I think that's what we need to do. So let's shift to your new book, The Eight Paradoxes of, of Great Leadership. And I think a little bit about what we were just talking about, I think it's a good segue into how your book starts, uh, describing just this unique moment that we're in yeah. as leaders right now. Tell us a little bit about the kind of the background of this book and, and about just the context that we find ourselves in right now as leaders. 
Yeah, we live in a very, very complex time. I know, Cal, that sounds cliche, but we do. We're leading in complex times. Um, I, I think the genesis of this book really was a green room meeting that I had before an event. And I was sitting down with 16 other CEOs. We were all getting ready to speak at some breakout or some plenary session. And so I just asked them all, do you think leading today is harder than it was than when you first learned to lead? And I was stunned when every single person that responded said, absolutely, yes, it's harder today. And the reason that stunned me is because I thought, most of us would say, oh, it's harder back when I didn't know anything, you know, back when I started leading at 28 years old. But nope, every single one of them said harder to lead today. So that kind of set me on a research hunt, you know, and I started digging and, and researching. And I discovered that the average team member entering a workforce, entering the workforce today, brings higher levels of education than they did years ago, higher levels of entitlement, pardon me. We all feel entitled to perks and benefits mm -hmm. today more than we did 15 years ago. Higher levels of exposure because we have a smartphone in our hand. We are exposed to everything and we think we know everything because we've been on Twitter, you yes. know. Um, higher levels of emotion. Uh, think of, well, here's how I would put it. I began my career four decades ago and the typical leader would say to a worker, Leave your problems at the door. You come here to work. You know, that was the way a boss talked. Well, today, the typical mantra is bring your whole selves to work, your emotions, your personal life, your problems. And I've talked to CEOs that say, I feel like I need to be a therapist <laughs> and a cheerleader and a motivational speaker. You know, <laughs> that's yes. true. We're both laughing right now, yeah. but it's true. 100%. So all of that boiled together. Um, just makes a, a leader go, my gosh, mm -hmm. I don't know whether you need me to be this or that. What do you need from me today? And the, the fact is they need a leader today. But what I really think is they need a very highly emotionally intelligent leader who knows when to practice the paradoxes. And that's what this book is about. Eight huge paradoxes that we need to just practice today. And we need to read them before we lead them and practice them at the right time. I want to ask you about so this book as I, I was reading through, I, I saw that it was uh, public or that it was it had the John Maxwell imprint on it. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that and why that's unique. Yeah, well, um, I talked to John Maxwell about this book. Uh, in fact, I called him to say I got three offers from three different publishers. Who do you think I should go with? And John smiled and said, "I don't think you should go with any of them. I think you should go with me." And <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, my publisher's HarperCollins, and I'm doing a brand new imprint with HarperCollins. And so John uh, very easily convinced me that this would be a great move. And so it's a HarperCollins book with a Maxwell imprint. John was kind enough to do the forward for the book. And he was so kind. He said, Tim, this is the best book I leadership book I read this year. I really like it. So when someone like that says that to you, you um, you kind of want to say, can you say that into a recorder, please? You know. <laughs> yeah. But um, anyway, he's been such a dear mentor and friend over the years. I worked for John for twenty years, and uh, so anyway, that's that's why um, the, the Maxwell name is on the book. Is uh, he has believed in me uh, and and in this book so much to uh, to put his name on it? Yeah. I always love asking leaders about other leaders that have impacted them. And I could just see your yeah. face light up when you talk about John. It's, I mean, yeah. obviously he's so well known, but it's, it's neat when you see someone like that, who people that know him the best get as just excited as you were right there on screen yeah. talking about him. Tell us what are some of the qualities about John that really just stand out to you the most? You know, I would say to anybody that's heard him speak, he he definitely is a magnet. He is um, attractive to many, many, but then some go, oh, I don't know if I connect with him, you know, that sort of thing. I feel like I owe him everything. I started with him, Cal, right out of college in 19, the early 1980s. So it was before he was really famous. You know, he wasn't a best-selling author yet. So he poured into me as a 20-something and a 30-something. 
Um, I, I work with him um, for, at, you know, at his nonprofit. And then I started Growing Leaders, and he was the first person to write a check. At, Growing Leaders is a nonprofit organization. He wrote it, first person to write a check. So, I mean, how do you not love the guy that before you even start something, he goes, I'm going to help you <laughs> get started. You. Yeah. Yes. Wow. But I want to tell you a story that might explain why I feel the allegiance I feel to him. John and I flew to India to do leadership conferences all over that country. And of course, John was and is a rock star there. You know, he he's this guy. So so I am I'm teaching a little bit, but John's teaching a lot. And I'm, you know, I think I was doing the overhead projector slides for him. Remember those way back <laughs> yeah. in the day? I do remember. So um, I'm doing those. I'm sitting in the front row. But before we left on this trip, my wife had written John a note and said, John, you remember my husband, Tim, is a type 1 diabetic. And so could you just from time to time, make sure he's okay with his blood sugars, you yeah. know, make sure he's, he's getting enough sugar. So John had just finished speaking. The crowd storms the stage. I'm not kidding. It was like a rock concert. They all walk up. They want his autograph. They want a picture. You know, they want some advice. Mm-hmm. And John answers a couple of questions, but I noticed he quickly pushes his way mm. past the crowd to get to me oh, wow. to ask me how I'm doing with my blood sugars. Wow. And I thought, this guy doesn't need to do this, mm-hmm. but, and he could be signing autographs right now, but instead <laughs> I get a little emotional here. He's doing what my wife asked him to do, <laughs> to check on this young guy and to make mm. sure he's okay. Mm. So I'm going, I'm in his corner. Yeah. I'm in his corner. Wow. Uh, and that's, that's what I would say. John is the same on the platform as he is off the platform, off the platform as he is on the platform. He's real. He's humorous. He's, he's funny. He's, he's genuine. He really believes his last book is the best thing ever, you know? And it's not because he's trying to say, he actually, this is something that's going to help you, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. And so, and so I have all of his books, you know, because they've helped me. So anyway, I'll stop there. I'm kind of waxing oh, out. No, now, but. Tim, I'm so glad you shared that. I love that story. I love stories yeah. like that. That's fantastic. Yeah. You did mention that he poured into you. Are, are there any yeah. other specific ways that you recall that he poured into you? I just love that word. It's yeah. when you said that. Yeah. So I remember my very first job evaluation with John Maxwell. I was 23 years old. We sit down together and he's got this tablet of paper. Back then a tablet was paper. Yeah. You said and tablet. I thought immediately that, like right, a, yeah. a technology. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. So John starts rattling off seven things that I do really well. And I start taking notes. Wow. He's very affirming. So John is very, very, very encouraging all the time. But then he gets into some three changes that I got to make. And I leaned in and I said, I beg your pardon. You know, (laughs) nobody had ever told me I need to make some changes yet, you know, make some, you know, improvements. So he, he tells me that, um, I need to develop off the platform charisma. Hmm. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's a term I just made up, but, um, he said, Tim, when you're speaking, you are dynamic. I mean, people just want to listen, blah, 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 blah. But he said, you walk off the platform and it's like you turn the button off, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's true. I'm an introvert by nature. Mm-hmm. So I want to curl up with a book by a fire yeah. and, yeah. you know, drink some coffee, you know, or whatever. <laughs> so, and, and John was right. Cal, I did need to develop off the platform charisma. And so I said, John, how do I do that? Yeah, that's my question. And John said to me, just watch me. Mm-hmm. And while I know that sounds arrogant, you know what I mean, John, I would watch him speak. And then afterwards he would get with the people and shake their hands and maybe sign a book, but he would ask them how their dog was, how's that mortgage going, you know, or whatever. And he actually would ask questions and actually care. And so I learned in my twenties, how to begin to be on, not off the other 24 and a half hours a day, you know, not just when I did that 30 minute talk. And um, it was so good. I still, to this day, practice those off-the-platform charisma principles that he taught me way back, you know, 35 or 40 years ago. So that would be one example. I remember John saying, here's some stuff nobody else will tell you. 
You need to develop off the platform charisma. You need to see beyond your own department and see the big picture or you will never get promoted, you know, and, and I learned that. Um, so yeah, all those, those kinds of things just have come back to bless me. I write, I just wrote him another thank you note. I just wrote him another thank you note, sent it down to Florida where he lives. <laughs> John, this is what I'm thankful for, you know? And, mm. uh, so anyway, that's, it's that's been, great, it's been I'm, fun. I'm always curious how people give feedback. Uh, and so one of the word, the, the, term of this show or the name of this show is intentional leader. And I think I yeah. actually named that after listening to a speech John gave about being intentional yeah. and it just yeah. deeply resonated with me. And it just sounds like he lives that all the time. Uh, but I'm he curious, how did, how did that feel when he gave you those uh, pieces? Uh, I think you said things you need to work on because sometimes yeah. it's, it yeah. can be hard to receive. It yeah. sounds like he's very yeah. affirming but then he gave you a couple of things that you know you could classify as negative or just things to, I like how he phrased it as things to work on, but how, how was that received by you? Was it, were you encouraged? Yeah. Were you discouraged? Was it? <laughs> well, at first it was a shocker because I just believed my mom. I was awesome. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah, of course. So um, I think by the end of the meeting, I was very encouraged and affirmed because John, um, I teach this now, but I think I probably learned it from John. He came in when he gave some feedback with high expectation and high belief. And those are two mm, different things. That's good. High expectation feels harsh if, if that's all you have. You know, I just expect a lot of you now. Go out and do it. You know, that may sound like a drill sergeant. But John came in with high expectation because I have high belief in you. So, um, Cal, I looked, I looked at the research behind this, and this is what good leaders do. I, it was actually an educational study done by Harvard University and other Ivy League schools. They actually worked with middle school teachers and they were asking the teachers, what kind of comments do you give that gets the best effort? You know, when you give this, what gets, you know, the best second, second try, you know? And here was the phrase that they said really, really, really gains effort from these students. And I'm going to give you the exact words because I've memorized them. And I don't think the words are magical, but the thought is magical. Here it is. I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations of you and I know you can reach them. Hmm. In that last part significant? Yes. I have high expectations of you and I know you, I know you can reach these. They said, especially male students hmm. just went to yeah. the mat. High expectation without high belief feels harsh, but high belief without high expectation feels hollow. You say you believe in me, but you don't expect much. Yeah. When you have both, oh my gosh, people will do anything. And I'm telling you, I would do anything for John Maxwell. And I got team members right now. I just had a team member that told me this. I'd do anything for you, Tim. And yeah. I don't take that lightly. I want to make yeah. sure I better lead them well. Yeah. If, they're, if they're that loyal... I better make sure I'm wise and mm. have integrity when I lead these people. Yeah. That's so helpful. Thank you for sharing that. That that's yeah. I'm gonna take that with me. Uh, and I hope the leaders out there listening uh, find that as helpful as I do. Well, thanks for sharing that, Tim. I I just love that. That's that's worth the price of admission, just being able to to hear those stories. And thanks for sharing that. Um, let's yeah, get into bet. a few of these paradoxes in, in the time we have left. And and I'll just say up front that. I love the title of this book and I love the content of this book because I, I just so believe that leadership is a, uh, it's a, there are a lot of values that you're trying to have in one person and they don't always, there's not always clear answers to how to lead, but you go yeah. through these eight paradoxes. Uh, I'll just list them off real quick and then we can, we can go through some of them, but uh, confidence and humility, vision and blind spots visibility and invisibility, stubborn and open-minded, deeply personal and inherently collective, teachers and learners, high standards and gracious, and timely and timeless. So the first one I'd love to, to hit on, and we only have a little bit of time left, uh, is this idea of confidence and humility. Tell yeah. us about tell yeah. us a little bit about that. That may be my favorite one. Um, and I it's number one on the list. So um I, I just believe people need confidence in their leader. I, I'm sure you would agree with that. People aren't going to follow a leader unless they show a little bit of confidence. Right, They're going to climb the mountain and make it to the yeah. top. 
but confidence alone starts feeling a little bit um, cocky. If uh, if all I display is confidence all the time, they're gonna they're, they're eventually gonna start saying, "What are you smoking? What are you drinking right now?" You know, you can't be that sure of everything. Hum- Here's what I would say to summarize it: um, Your confidence makes your leadership believable, but your humility makes your confidence believable. That shows me you know you're human. And that you need other team members on this team to really see the larger picture and to get to the goal together. So I think when you put them together, you have a whole leader that is both um, ready to go to climb that mountain, but they're humble enough to realize I'm going to take this whole team with me. So I, I think that was now I give a case study on every one of these um, paradoxes. My case study on this one is Bob Iger, former CEO of the Disney enterprise. So when Bob Iger came in, he had never led a company like Disney. He'd been a part of the Disney family, but he'd been in television. He'd been at ABC. So, you know, he'd never sold a company that sold theme park tickets, plush toys, animated movies, you know. So he said, I had to come in asking questions, humbly asking the people that I was leading, how do we do this? But Bob said, when it was time to make a decision, I had to make a confident decision. So you see the two coming together yeah. there and Bob absolutely blew it out of the water. He, I mean, he, Disney grew, he bought four other companies while he was there. You know, he bought the, the Lucas films and, and, and Pixar and, and others. Fabulous. And I'll stop there. I know we need to keep moving here, but confidence and humility says to me, I've got to be confident enough to lead these people and make them believe that I believe we're going to get to the goal. But they also need to believe, I know I need you to get to this goal. And is that the is that the story that you shared with was it Iger and Steve Jobs that had that comment? Yeah. Share that little anecdote. I think that's also really helpful yes. to understand this concept. Well, it's so interesting. Michael Eisner, his predecessor, and mm-hmm. Steve Jobs had been meeting several times, but they never reached an agreement on the Disney purchase of Pixar. You can imagine it was two egos. Two very confident egos meeting together in all due respect to both of those men. So they reached an impasse. They, they never did merge, merge this thing together. Uh, Steve Jobs would eventually say, this is crazy what you're, what you're laying out here. So when Bob Iger took over, he lets a little time pass. And then he calls Steve Jobs and he says this, Steve, I know you and Michael were meeting and you kind of came to an impasse. I'm so sorry. He said, um, as I got to thinking, I got to thinking, I can't help but believe we would, we would be stronger together. And Steve Jobs said to him, that's not such a crazy idea. Now, isn't that interesting? He just said it was crazy to the mm-hmm. predecessor because mm-hmm. it was an ego he was meeting with. And by the way, Michael Eisner was kicked off you know, the team as the CEO because the board said, you're cocky, you're arrogant, you're, 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 not, you're not teachable. But Bob came in with a humble spirit and and they purchased Pixar. Now, here's what's the cool part about it. After Disney purchases Pixar, Bob Iger goes, okay, tell us how to do Disney animation. So the very company he purchased, he said, now tell us what to do. Is that not confidence and humility? I love that. I love that. It's just a brilliant, vivid example. Yeah, Yeah, that's a leader you want to follow. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And I'm trying to practice it. I wrote this book for me, Cal. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to practice these eight paradoxes. <laughs> Those are the because best I put a case. Yeah. Yeah. It re- Well, I hope so. Mm-hmm. Every single man and woman I wrote about, I learned from, and I said, mm-hmm. I want to, I want to help others learn these paradoxes too. It's what the 21st century demands of leaders. Did you have a specific way that you think about humility? Because that word might bring different meanings to different people. Yeah. 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 I, you, we've all heard the phrase, um, humility doesn't mean thinking less of yourself, but it means thinking of yourself less. Mm-hmm. But I gave assignments in every one of these chapters that I'm practicing now. The assignment might be the best answer to your question. When I'm in a meeting with people, I want to speak as if I believe I'm right, but I want to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. Oh, wow. If I assume that posture, it makes me confident and humble. Yeah. Speak as if you believe you're right. Listen as if, if you believe you're wrong. 
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Because I'm always curious about just some practical ways that leaders can go and execute some of these higher level concepts <clears throat> right away. And that's super practical. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about vision and blind spots. That one jumped out at me, even when I just looked through the uh, the index. Tell us about that, th- that combination <clears throat> of leveraging your vision as a leader, but also leveraging your blind spots. Yeah. Well, that does certainly sound like a paradox, doesn't it? How it could does. blind spots be good? You know. <laughs> so. Um, Vision and blind spots can be summarized best this way. Clearly, leaders have to have a vision to, 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 to go forward. You got to have a dream. You got to have a target to hit. But I actually believe the greatest leaders I've ever spoken with would say something like, oh my gosh, thank God for that blind spot. If I had known then what I know now, I would have never gotten started, you know, mm-hmm. or I would thank God I didn't know that or this or whatever. So my case study on this one was Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx, okay? So Sarah developed this industry called shapewear. You know, it's kind of like stockings and yet a girdle or whatever. So when she comes up with the idea, she does so for herself. She cuts the ends off of her pantyhose and, you know, develops this thing, finds a manufacturer in North Carolina to, to, to create, you know, to build them. But then she was faced with a quandary of, Who's going to distribute these? So she calls up a female executive at Neiman Marcus and says, could I meet with you? Well, the the woman agrees to meet with her for a short amount of time, like 10 minutes. So Sarah goes over, meets with her, and Sarah realizes after just five minutes of meeting with this executive, I'm not getting anywhere. (laughs) And so this young Sarah Blakely, I think she was still in her 20s. She was still a young professional, Mm. stands up. And says, would you follow me? And the executive at Neiman Marcus says, I beg your pardon. And she says, would you follow me into the restroom? I want to do a show and tell. (laughs) And so both of these ladies walk into the restroom. Sarah tries on her Spanx and immediately sells the concept. Oh my gosh, this is great. (laughs) Because every woman knows, oh my gosh, you look better. You look firmer. And so she agrees to sell them in a beta test in about 10 or 12 you know, stores. So Sarah, this young professional, very wisely calls up all of her friends in those cities and says, I'm about to send you some money. I want you to buy out all the spanks in all of those, you know, in this city that you're living in. Well, they take off. They take off. Now, fast forward, you know, a few months to where Sarah is speaking at a conference and telling her story of all this. And then she does a Q&A. Well, in the Q&A, Somebody raises their hand and says, Sarah, how did you get noticed in a trade show with thousands of other exhibitors? How did your product, Spanx, get noticed? And Sarah goes, trade show? I never went to a trade show, you know? (laughs) And they just assumed that was protocol. That's what you always do when you have a new product is go to a trade show. Well, Sarah would now say, it was my blind spot. I didn't know that's what you were supposed to do. I just went straight to the top flew over to Neiman Marcus headquarters and met with this executive. So Sarah now says, sometimes not knowing what protocol is, is your greatest advantage. The blind spot, as well as the vision, blessed her amazingly. So in that chapter, I talk about maintaining your blind spots by keeping up your rookie smarts. Have you all heard, you've heard the term rookie smarts, haven't you? You know, it's, it's like that. Ooh, wow. You, you know, when you don't know what you're doing, I think I've maintained some rookie smarts because, because I keep practicing certain habits that keep me dumb where I need to be dumb to release new products, new services, to try new things that I would never try before. Because even at my age, four decades into my career, I'm still stupid. (laughs) And it's a good thing, you know. Can you tell us about some of those habits that help you maintain those yeah, blind spots? Absolutely. Rookie, rookie I'll smarts, do, I'll do I a couple of them. Yeah. yeah. So rookie smarts, once again, is the, this whole concept of wow, when you're new, you know, that's what I just said. You don't know certain things, and and it's why you can just, you know, skirt ahead. So here's a couple of practices I still practice. You meet with people outside of your industry and ask them questions about your industry. They're not going to say the same thing you already know because they don't know. So you follow what I'm saying? So, so I meet with Tim Tosopoulos, the president of Chick-fil-A, 
who, who, who is selling chicken. They, he's not in my industry. And he gives me ideas every time I meet with him. Mm -hmm. I meet with Andy Stanley, you, you know, who is another industry. I meet with John Maxwell. So everybody listening says, well, I may not know those people, but I know some people outside of my industry. Let me meet with them, ask them questions if you were doing what I'm doing. And I mean to tell you every single time I meet with outside people, I learn something. That's I funny. read books from people outside of my industry. I, I, I do read books from people that are doing what I'm doing, but most of the books I read are not people that are doing what I'm doing. I want to make sure that I'm learning from the best outside of that industry. I'm attending conferences specifically from people that are outside the industry, but Cal, I've come up every year in January. So, uh, you know, it's January. I have five or six new areas that I want to grow in this year. And I'm going to conferences that will teach me things about those, you know, th those areas. So I'm purpose. I'm not leaving growth to chance. I'm an intentional leader because I'm growing in those areas that I've already outlined, uh, you know, outlaid. That's where I want to grow. So I'll stop there, but that's, that's kept me on the right track over the years. I can totally see how that would be extremely helpful. All of those. Uh, thanks for sharing those. Again, just yeah. super practical and, and very helpful. Uh, I want to ask you just a few lightning round questions in the time we have okay. left. We've got a few minutes left, Tim. But uh, first one is, what is one habit, routine, or ritual for you that has made the biggest positive difference? Yeah. Wow. I can think of a bunch. But one that immediately comes to mind is I read at the beginning of the day. So I get up a little bit earlier than my wife does. It's still dark out, but I, I, this may not work for everybody, but find a time to consume. But for me, it's, it's morning. I would say if I were honest, it's also evening too, before I go to bed, I got a stack of books, probably like you do next to my nightstand, but, but read before I start the day. Um, that would be one habit. And then meeting with mentors. Hmm. Uh, remember I talked about reverse mentoring. So I'm meeting yeah. with younger and older. Um, I have mentors and I have mentees that I'm meeting with and both keep me straight. The mentors keep me straight because they're giving me wisdom I don't yet have, but my mentees keep me straight because I don't want to mess up. I've got people looking at me and following me. So both of those have been really good guardrails mm. on my road to, to the future. Yeah. See, Tim, you're giving me so much gold that I'm not even going to go to the next question because I got I to gotta follow up. These are too, this is too good. So real <laughs> okay. quick. So when you meet with your mentors or your mentees, what is the general format of that? Those Do you have kind of a consistent format yes. that you use? Yes, I do. But it does depend on who they are. So with my mentors, I tell them, John Maxwell or Tim Tosopoulos, I'm going to bring a tablet of questions. If you'll just bring your appetite, I'm going to treat you to lunch or breakfast, mm -hmm. and I'm going to ask you questions. So I drive the agenda for them. That okay. takes. That means they don't have to prepare. Yeah. You know, for for the meeting, I have to prepare. But with my mentees, some of them, I do the same thing. I say, you bring the agenda. You know what you need to learn. Yeah. But in some areas, I'm reading books with them. So the agenda is we're going to go over this book, Leadership and Self Deception or the coddling great. of the American mind, or whatever. Um, eight paradoxes of great leadership. Eight, eight paradoxes. <laughs> That's right. And I am, do, I am going through that book with some of yeah, my mentees. It's super so, great. Um, yeah. yeah, so it depends on who they are, and it's playing chess, not checkers again. I'm making sure I'm doing what, what the, I'm scratching the itch that they have, not making up something and hoping to God they need that. And last question about how many people do you intentionally mentor like that? Or do you have, do you try to keep it to a smaller number? Cause that sounds pretty deliberate. You're, you're, you're yeah. coming up with questions or they're coming up with questions. You're going through books. You're a busy yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. So there are five people I'm mentoring and okay. then I have six mentors. So that does okay. keep me pretty busy outside yeah. of the work that I do, you know, for a paycheck. So, um, my mentees, some are long distance and we're getting on a zoom, you know, mm -hmm. or a phone call. And then uh, the ones in town I meet with in person. Uh, but yeah, I, I put it on the calendar because I believe the issue is not prioritizing my schedule, but rather scheduling my priorities. I put it in the calendar before all the other meetings crowd them out. Yes. My mentors and mentees are of utmost importance to, to my calendar. Yeah. 
Well, Tim, this has been a joy to connect with you today. Thank you so much for dropping all this wisdom on us. Real quick, as we've we've got like a 30 seconds left, tell us where people can find out about Growing Leaders and also find your new book. Yeah, yeah, sure. So growingleaders.com is our website. That's the easiest place to find the Eight Paradoxes book or or any other resource, the habitudes that we that we have, growingleaders.com, or you can go to timelmore.com. Uh, if you want to book me to speak or whatever, that's where um, you can find me there. But yeah, we'd lo- I'd love to connect with anybody listening that's found this helpful and wants to go a little deeper. And Cal, it's been an honor to be with you. Thanks for what you do and uh, just for the time to, to hang out and have a good conversation. Hey, friends, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Tim Elmore. So many wonderful takeaways, so much wisdom from him. And you can just tell, I mean, the guy's written over 35 books. He knows what he's talking about. He thinks about this stuff a lot. I loved his stories about John Maxwell. I love what he said about giving feedback, that specific line that he said of high expectation and high belief. And that line, in case you missed it, that he said from that research is that I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations of you And I know that you can reach these. And I can totally understand why that would resonate with people. I've started to use that in my own leadership. I love his line about humility, the practical way. I want to speak as if I believe I'm right and listen as if I believe I'm wrong. I love the contrast of vision and blind spots. That great example from Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. Uh, just some of the habits they talked about of how to keep your rookie smarts and your blind spots, meet with people in industries that are not your own, surround your peop- yourself with mentors. Just also loved his way of reading first before he starts today, meeting with mentors and mentees, his approach to mentoring and menteeing. Uh, man, just so many great, wonderful takeaways. Let me know what you thought. Shoot me an email, cal at calwalters.me. Once again, thank you so much for investing in yourself. Thank you for coming alongside me and learning. Every time I do these conversations, I learn so much. And it's just an honor to be with you. Spend some time in your car or whether you're on a run or at the gym or just hanging out, doing, doing the dishes. It's just an honor to be with you. I appreciate you. I love you. I'm rooting for you. Continue to invest in yourself because as you get better every single day, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Continue to invest in yourself because it's just amazing the impact that you can have when you're at your best. I hope you go and make a difference in the people around you today. Remember, we don't know how much time we have. Life is short, so let's go make it count.